I've been talking about how Jesus' story connects with our story and how suffering, Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection is the gospel, not just his death and resurrection. His death is very important. Without his death, we don't get forgiveness of sins. But with his suffering, we also get healing and freedom because he was tempted like us. So what I want to do is I'm starting to work on a series of Bible studies, uh, doctrinal studies that will begin with integrating Jesus' story with our story as the beginning of each doctrine. Uh, I do have a book, Brutally Honest, besides Hidden Half, where uh, we go through the, mo the angriest psalm in Scripture. And a lot of people say, why is it in there? And I say, because God wants us to develop an intelligent faith. Uh, David says, may the man, he's mad at a guy who's betraying him. He says, may the man die, the wife be a widow, nobody feed him, cut off both generations before and after the guy. He's nicer to the wife. He only wants the wife's generation to be cut off going forward. But if it's in the word of God, then we can wrestle with it. Why is this in there? What does it teach us? And it really is a pathway into healing and freedom. This is a, uh, a video, it's just a one minute video clip of Rachel and she ends up going door to door, she's part of a church plant and she asks the lady uh, if she wants Bible studies, health books, she doesn't go into the whole thing in this one minute testimony and the lady doesn't want anything. And then, even though Rachel's like 20 years old, 21 years old, and she, this lady's a mother with a couple of kids, she asks Rachel, uh, do you have a counseling? I want counseling, I don't want Bible studies, I want health. So I want to share with you her testimony, how we can combine Jesus' story with her story, and then what ha what, how the lady responds afterwards. Is that on? Whoops, let's, we'll start that again. as soon as that gets fixed. Uh, if you speak Spanish, we have this testimony on our website in Spanish. It's about five minutes. It gives a lot more detail. Um, so, uh, and I, I can also say that I have a little bias because I, I met her as a, uh, when she was 14, doing a week of prayer, did some discipling, met her four, four years later when she got to college, and then, um, my nephew started dating her, and uh, she said, hey, do you know anything about the hidden half of the gospel of Straight to Arts Ministry? And she, he goes, yeah, that's my uncle. And uh, so now she is my niece as well, and uh, she loves Jesus. So we'll get that recording going, and uh, when it goes. But there, we're there, Dave? If the sound isn't there, we'll just keep going. So one of the ways that Spirit provides practical help for, um, in ministry is, um, I experienced it a couple weeks ago, where we're doing this church plant project, and we go door to door knocking, asking people if they would like Bible studies. And so I knocked on one door, and the lady came out, and. I offered her Bible studies and she said, no, no, I'm not interested. And I, she's like, but who are, who are you guys anyway? And I told her we were working on this project and she's like, do you guys offer counseling? And um, when, I, when I mentioned that I was part of an organ, a program that does something similar to that, straight to the heart, she was just like, come in, come in. I, 
I need, I need counseling. And at that point, I was able to share Jesus' story and connect it with her story through prayer. We prayed together, and after the prayer, she looked at me and she goes, can you come back next week so that we could study the Bible together? And I just smiled at that. I was like, yes, absolutely, that's why we're here. So it was just an amazing bridge between um, Christ's story and her story that this ministry connected with her. So, so the lady says not no to Bible studies, no to health studies, but she asked for counseling. She says, I don't counsel, but she ends up connecting her story to Jesus' story. And then the lady asks her, can you come back next week and do Bible studies? And because Rachel uh, was kind of a part of our family anyway, I think even she was good friends with us even before I think she started dating our nephew, uh, she would come by our house and have dinner with us like once a week. And so months later, I know this lady was still going to the church plant with her children. So, uh, every, you know, if anybody's done literature evangelism, you know you're not going to knock on every door and get a Bible study, right? Some are open, some aren't. But this is another resource. It's not the only resource, but it's another way for God to reach hearts and end up with Bible studies. And so what I want to do is talk about a Bible study series that I wanna, I'm working on right now. It's called Jesus' Story and My Story and Prophecy. So it's going to be focused on prophecy, but the first part of the prophecies are actually going to be Jesus suffering death and resurrection, so we're making sure they're getting the assurance of salvation, resting in his righteousness, um, and then bringing that into all the doctrines. Because in, in Desire of Ages it says every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God a missionary. And we don't, sometimes we can baptize people, but does that mean they're disciples who are missionaries? There's a difference, and so that's my goal. And uh, the theme of it's going to be receiving God's prophecy and we're going to define that God's prophecy is his promise to redeem us and restore us for eternity. Whoops, I, one of those is misspelled. But, so that's going to be the focus. So first we're going to look at why would we uh, bring in a new Bible study? How do we connect with their hearts? And why would Jesus often ask questions from people that he already knew the answers? We're going to begin with Jesus' story in, in the study format. Then we're going to minister to the person's story uh, before getting into the actual Bible truths and then we're going to look at uh, some new, two New Testament chapters in this study and then seven thief and the knife verses and see where we end up. So we want to st practice stepping out of our world into the other person's world because often if I begin wh where I am I could miss where they are and I've done it, the, done it the wrong way where I start with my agenda not God's agenda not their world and uh, so we want to talk about baptizing disciples who are missionaries moving into ministry in their communities. And again, we we found the foundation of everything we do is the cross. So we go through negative experiences, we get negative thoughts, I'm alone, I'm abandoned, I'm abused, and then we say we can't trust God, where is God? Jesus went through all those negative experiences, he was actually tempted to numb his pain on the cross, tempted to check out as was mentioned earlier today, uh, in that darkness in Gethsemane and Calvary, he's being tempted that his separation from God is eternal. He can't see beyond, uh, and he can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So he has to trust God based on what he knows about his father's character. Not what he can see, sense, and feel, because he can't see, sense, and feel his father's presence. So we, we're gonna, they're going to be going through that every single week, getting... Uh, into Jesus' story, dealing with healing and freedom, dealing with forgiveness. So we're discipling them, and they have a relationship with God. And we always separate out two factors. We believe negative thoughts, 
Jesus did not give in to the negative thoughts. He suffered being tempted, but he never had sinful feelings of anger, bitterness, shame and guilt from sin. But he who knew no sin was made to be my sin and he took all my shame. So if the person struggling with sin, shame and guilt, Jesus took that. If they're struggling with suffering and negative thoughts, he took that to the cross. Because he was tempted like us, yet without sin. He went through all these negative experiences and he did not sin, but then he who knew no sin was made to be sin, so he's covering sin and suffering. We always want to make sure that people understand Jesus was tempted with real temptations, and we're going to get into that a little later uh, today, but he never gave in to them, so we can receive his victory and his freedom. And our SDA gospel belief number nine includes Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection as the gospel. Not death and resurrection, but suffering, death, and resurrection, so that when we need forgiveness, he can provide. When we need healing from suffering, he can provide. And as I mentioned yesterday, Jesus mentioned it. All the Old Testament writers mention it according to Jesus' own words. All the New Testament writers include suffering. Uh, our doctrine and belief number nine includes it, and so does the spirit of prophecy. That's a pretty good biblical foundation to uh, build on. So now what we want to do is I was uh, uh, after I left the Catholic Church, and then I came into knowing truth, I wanted to share it with my aunt, and so I sent her a pamphlet by a Catholic bishop showing that, you know, Saturday's the Sabbath. The problem is, I was giving her information she wasn't asking for. I was on my agenda, beginning with my world. I wanted her to know truth, but I didn't build a relationship to prepare her and ask her if she wanted it. So what she said is, she said, I don't want to see you anymore. Can you imagine why? <laughs> so I know how to do it the wrong way, not build a relationship, and I'm sure some of you listening can identify where we have done it the wrong way and people don't want what we have to share because we didn't build a relationship first, right? And sometimes we have to learn the hard way, but we, hopefully we can learn from other people's mistakes as well. And then here in Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White says, a savior knew that no argument, however logical, would melt, melt hard hearts. So we need something more than just logical facts in proving we're right. I can be right, I can speak the truth, but not necessarily in love. And that's a journey that we need to learn on. And so, uh, I want to move by attraction, not compulsion. And here's, here's a quote. The servants of God have trusted too much to the strength of argument and have not had that firm reliance upon God, which they should have. And that was my experience in my enthusiasm. I had zeal without a lot of love or tact. And I might be the only one that's listening to this, that's had that experience, but I have a hunch more than one of you can identify. Uh, I saw that the mere argument of the truth will not move souls to take a stand. The servants of God must have truth in the soul. So I can't just have it here, I have to have it here, and God's love has to build bridges with people. Which means I have to learn to be more patient, build a relationship. And then she goes on to say at the end, uh, it's impossible to move many with a mere theory of the truth. There must be a power to attend the truth, a living testimony to move them. It can't be just information. Paul says, we loved you so much, we shared with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've been so dear to us. See, Paul couldn't share the gospel story without them sharing their stories. Do we share the gospel in a way that's drawing out people's stories, or is it just information that we're arguing about? I was... Uh, I was in a store once, one of those little, it wasn't 7-Eleven, but it was one of those little, like, stores. And the guy in front of me was in line, and he had a white t-shirt on, 
and he had a huge tattoo on the back of his neck with a date. So I figured he wanted me to ask because it's there. He's advertising. It's like a billboard. So I asked him what happened on that date. And I'm thinking maybe that's the day he got married. That's what I'm thinking. He turns around and says, thank you so much for asking. That was the day my son died. That was not what I was expecting. But he put it out there. I asked and then I said, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what that was like. And he thanked me, and it's one of those times where I wish the clerk would have taken a bathroom break because I could have continued the conversation, but he turned around, picked up his cigarettes and soda, and walked out the door. So I only got about 10 seconds. But I feel like I made the most of the 10 seconds I had because I asked about his story. I didn't start with something about me. I started with his story. And if I had another 20 seconds, I could have said, what was your son's name? What did he die of? Okay, now I'm, that's only going to take 10 seconds for me to ask and him to answer. So we're 20 seconds into the conversation. If we get that far, I could say, what kind of resources, support, are you and your wife getting to go through this? And I could find out if he has a church, if he doesn't. And then I can ask, uh, I have a spiritual resource that's helped me through hard times. I haven't lost a child, but I have spiritual resources. And I say spiritual because a lot of people, as soon as you say Christian, they identify you with organized religion and, you, and, and the walls go up. Um, but I, what I can do is, I can, and if he says yes, then what I can do is sh share the gospel with him, that Jesus is a man of grief and sorrows. And God the Father knows what it's like to lose a son. And then go from there and see if he would be willing to pray. But I'm building a bridge. I'm asking questions. I'm not coming in like a steamroller, right? And uh, so I want to have a ministry where the Bible study is actually asking specific questions in each study as it relates to the heart issue of that study so I'm getting more of their story every week it's not just read a scripture check off read a scripture check off read a scripture check off I actually want to take time to get their story uh, I was in an airport in Columbia flying somewhere and I'd been there three or four years in a row so there were some people in the airport they knew me and they kind of spoke English I didn't speak any Spanish they greeted me and I needed to get a text back to the States uh, we were buying a house at the time and my phone wasn't connecting to the internet. So one of the older ladies said, hey, talk to the lady next year. And she's in her mid-30s. And I assumed that she was with their group, waiting to fly there and to be at the uh, series I was going to do. So she couldn't help me, but she said, here, use my phone. I'll pair you up to my phone, and then you can do it. So it worked. And then they go, okay, now tell her about your ministry. And I said, isn't she with your group? They go, no, we don't know her. We just thought she looked like a nice person would help you. Well, I wouldn't usually walk up to somebody, a single woman, in an airport and start a conversation. But see, I had a need, and they said, hey, help her, and I find out later. So I'm starting to share with her. Turns out she's a single parent, because I said, why are you going to this city? And she said, well, I'm going to see my son. And I said, okay, how old is he? And she goes, two years old, or three, something like that. And I said, well... You live here and you're going, yeah, my, my parents uh, are raising him. I need to be here to work. I can make money in the city. Uh, I can't, there's no work in that little town. And so I got in, got in the story. She got involved with an American. She got pregnant. He came back to the U.S. And she starts showing me pictures of him and videos. She starts crying because she misses her son. So I had a chance to talk with her, share with her about Jesus being born to an unwed mother and that God has special plans for her son, and she's got tears coming down her eyes, I've never seen her again. But I had a chance to get her story, even though I wasn't even planning on it. I, I would never have talked to her other than 
the, la the ladies in the group said, go talk to her. She can help you. <laughs> so God has interesting ways of creating conversations. And then I was in the post office, not too far from her house. There was myself, a single mother, or a, a mother and a, like a two-year-old. And she was fine. She was happy. She's wandering around. And the mother's very, very stressed. Honey, we're going to get home. We're going to get home. This is our last stop. And she's just really stressed. And so I, it was just her, her daughter, myself, and the two people helping us. And so I, I just made a comment. I said, you know, it's got to be tough to be a mother and multitask. Try and mail packages and watch your daughter. She was fine. The door was closed in there. She was safe. And she turns around, never met before, and she said, you have no idea her daddy just left us. See, I actually believe everybody's a walking story. Now, why would they share things like this with me? And I have lots of other stories like this that... They share with me when I'm a complete stranger. And if I had more time with her, she left, I could have said, hey, would you want to come over to dinner? My wife would be happy to watch your daughter. We could have dinner, uh, maybe build a relationship. She left. But what if we have 10 seconds? Can we make the most of it? If we have 30 seconds or a minute, can we make the most of it by asking questions and not beginning with what we need to give them, but get to know their story, which is the way Jesus often did it. So... Um, and it's very important and it's it's a less of a burden on me because I'm asking questions I'm being curious and I'm getting their story. So this is a story ministry uh, We know this quote Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching people the Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good He showed this he showed his sympathy for them ministered to their needs and won their confidence then he bade them follow me so He's mingling, he's desiring their good, he's seeing them as a person. He's showing sympathy, ministering to them, seeing their needs, and he's winning their trust by stepping into their world so he gains credibility to break open the bread of life. Why does he call them last, not first? Why doesn't he start with calling them? Sometimes, can we start with calling first and miss out on their story? That's what I was doing with my aunt. Um, so we often begin with correction, not connection. That's what I was doing with my aunt. I was beginning with correction, not connection. I wasn't building a relationship with her, asking her where she was, if she was interested in scripture and talking. I was beginning with my need to correct a false belief. And it doesn't matter if I say it's for the right reason, I want her to know truth, I'm building walls, not bridges. Now she would grow award-winning roses, um, and she grew roses in her backyard. So what I did was I sent her roses, apologized, and then I rebuilt the relationship. So I began with her world. So hopefully you can learn some, some of my mistakes and we can see how we can move, begin with connection, not correction. Again, desire of ages, every true disciple is born in the kingdom of God, a missionary. So when I began ministry, I was baptizing people, but were they disciples who were missionaries or interests who learned to believe in the state of the dead, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, and then sitting passively in the pews? They ended up sitting passively in the pews because no one taught me how to disciple people to be born into the kingdom of God, a missionary. So I had to stumble into it. Um, we're told the Lord desires that his word of grace shall she be brought home to every soul. For Christ, it was accomplished by personal labor. There's a place for preaching and teaching. I have a full-time teaching and discipleship ministry. We're teaching here. Uh, but he's, most of it was personal. Christ, his work was largely made up of personal interviews and the one sole audience. When the word has been preached in the pulpit, the work has just begun. So in other words, what I do behind the pulpit is not my ministry, it's the beginning of my ministry. So when people come up and say, hey, I've been abused, I've been rejected, I've been abandoned, I've been betrayed, 
then I can start taking them into the cross, start praying with them and discipling them as they share their story and I can connect it with Jesus' story. And it's, it's easier for me to do ministry this way than to think about how can I bring up a topic that I want them to agree with me on as opposed to getting to know them, getting to know the stories and seeing which doors God opens and closes. Uh, it also says in the training of his disciples, the example of the Savior's life was far more effective than doctrinal instruction. During his ministry, Jesus devoted more time to healing than sick than preaching. So which is truth, doctrinal correctness, being right, or the life of Jesus living out God's love, grace, and truth? And why does she say that the example of Jesus' life is far more effective than mere doctrinal instruction? I thought we were supposed to preach the truth. But if I preach the truth without Jesus, without teaching them how to rest their burdens in Christ and to trust in his righteousness, I'm not really teaching them the truth as it is in Jesus. Do we do more healing than preaching or more preaching than healing? When I ask people that, they say more preaching than healing and I ask for a percentage and it's about 90% preaching, teaching, 10% healing. If we reverse that, we'd have a lot more credibility and we'd be baptizing disciples who are missionaries. So why do we reverse Jesus' approach to ministry? Turn it around. Well, is it easier teaching or offering healing? Is it easier teaching about what happens when we die, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the second coming, or is it easier to walk with people through the pain of getting over addictions to, to pornography, uh, dealing with abortion, and divorce in their life? Which is easier? Teach them information or walk with them through the messiness and brokenness of their life? It's much easier to do that. And when I first began, I would have to include, like some Alan White's comments, it was much easier to argue about the truth, to use an argumentative approach, like I'm here to show you what truth is and I want you to agree. That's much safer, it's less messy, right? Uh, but Jesus seemed to come and enter into people's brokenness all the time. In fact, he upset all the traditions of his day by touching lepers, touching women who were sick, uh, and doing that. He was breaking all the rules. So which one is safer? less relational, less co costly. Teaching these. And the sad thing is, these are all true and we want people to know the truth. But this is, uh, but which is messier, more relational, more costly? Walking with them in their journey out of guilt and shame and grief and loss from the things that have happened in their life. So if we have a gospel that actually speaks into their brokenness, then our evangelistic opportunities explode because brokenness is inside of me, brokenness is inside of you, and it's everywhere. Brokenness is actually our greatest evangelistic opportunity if we know how to move from the information about the gospel to application. So which one is going to produce a disciple? Me just giving them information or me walking with them in their life? It's going to be walking with them in their life over days, weeks, months, and even years. And do I have somebody who lived 2,000 years ago who spent days, weeks, months, and years with his disciples? You realize the gospel is a series of stories where the disciples missed every major message he taught them. He missed the message of the cross. They missed the message of blessing children. They missed the message with the woman at the well. They missed the message with the Canaanite woman. They missed every single major message he told because they were fixated on one thing and one thing only. You have power, we gotta overthrow the Romans. They missed every major message. Did Jesus give up on them over days, weeks, months, and years? So maybe if he's God, and he is, and he walked with them for three and a half years with perfect truth, perfect doctrine, perfect teaching, maybe I should be committed to letting him minister to me and walking with others for days, weeks, months, and years. 
That is not the normal message in Christianity. You can sign on to a doctrinal agreements, get baptized, sit in the pew, and nobody ever knows you for years. No, it never really knows you. So we'd like to have a Bible study series that's intentionally drawing your story out so we can bring it into Jesus' story and the cross and baptize disciples who are missionaries. So what if we can integrate Jesus' story in prophecy with the truths in God's word in prophecy and in a way that we're multiplying disciples like Rachel, disciples who are baptized as missionaries. See, when I was drinking and doing drugs, anger and bitter, um, I wasn't seeing the big picture with the losses I was creating for myself and others. Get off work, go to the bar, drink and do drugs. I wasn't seeing the big picture. Could I fail to see the big picture um, when the losses I create if I teach truth, doctrinal truth, but I miss hearts who need of healing. See, if I don't have a gospel that speaks into their brokenness, I really don't have the whole gospel. And I can be missing all kinds of major opportunities. Jesus said he was anointed by God to preach the gospel in a way that heals a broken heart and set the captives free. We need the Luke 4.18 gospel in every study we do with people. Otherwise, I'm teaching truths that are true but I'm baptizing broken hearts who are not healed, not set free by the gospel. I can end up doing that. I want to share Diana's story. Uh, she became a Christian, and then she got, took Bible studies, then she got baptized. But uh, she's abused, sexually abused by a family friend. There are conflicts and battles within her family. Uh, she's abused, and she learns to believe I'm not safe, and I need to be control, in control of everything around me and I can't trust anyone. She had fear, panic attacks. She's afraid of open spaces, closed spaces, and then she had irritable bowel. And one way of describing irritable bowel for many people is uh, your body can't eliminate solid waste because your stomach's tied in knots, not the only reason, so, that, so she gets diarrhea. So guess what happens? The more she tries to control everything and look at everything, the more her stomach's tied in knots. So she goes from fear to panic attacks, to agoraphobia, claustrophobia, and uh, then she um, struggles. So here's what happens. She's abused. She's not safe. She says, I have to be in control based on Satan whispering her lies. And so she doesn't know about the fruit and root principle that we have to deal with our negative beliefs and our behaviors, our negative beliefs and not one or the other. It's both and. Uh, so she has fear. Then she decides the way to deal with fear is to be in control of everything around me. And as a four-year-old, that's a pretty big job to keep yourself safe in the world, isn't it? And it keeps her going. So now she's an adult. Then she gets panic attacks. Then she tries to be in control more. Then she has irritable bowel, diarrhea. If she doesn't deal with the negative thoughts, she's never going to get free. And so what happens is Satan, using first-person language, whispering to her thoughts as if they're her thoughts, I'm not good enough, I have to be in control. He sets Diana up to be hurt by a family friend who wasn't a friend, who was a betrayer. Then he sets Diana up to hurt herself when she tries to number pain by trying to be in control. And then he sets Diana up to lose hope with more lies that teaches her she can never be free. She's nothing more than be someone who was abused. That's her identity. So she gets these thoughts whispered in first-person language, I'm not safe, I can't trust others, I need to be in control so I can keep myself safe. I have to protect myself. Now she accepts Jesus Christ, she takes Bible studies, she believes the Sabbath, she believes the state of the dead, she believes the sanctuary, and she sincerely accepted Jesus, and she baptizes her. And I know her pastor, he's a very sincere guy. 
She gets baptized. She comes up out of the baptistry with all of her fears, all of her phobias, all of her panic attacks, and all of her problems. Is she, is she being baptized into the kingdom of God as a missionary? Is she going to be excited about sharing the good news of the gospel when she's accepted Jesus, but she's got all those problems and all of her negative thoughts? It's going to be hard for her. How does someone who has fear and panic attacks share the good news with others? So she shared a little bit, uh, gave a testimony at a pastor's meeting, and I told her I'd be happy to pray with you. And her pastor, and her pastor and I are, are, are friends, and... Uh, a year later, there was camp meeting, and so she said, I'm finally ready to pray. And so her pastor said, how come you waited a year, year to wait? She goes, I wasn't worth your time. Do you hear her belief system? She wasn't worth our time. So as she thinks in her heart, so is she. So she doesn't ask for our time because she's not worth it. Okay. So we spent that camp meeting um, praying. And we met in the mother's room there, and uh, we prayed every day. She talked a lot about pain, lies, having to be in control, uh, about forgiveness for the people who'd hurt her. It was really hard work. It was like a spiritual root canal. That's what it was. Or a spiritual open heart surgery. That's what it was. And uh, it wasn't easy, but she was getting a little more freedom, a little more freedom. The last day we met, her husband says, well, she has irritable bowel. So I said, okay, God, what do you want to know about that? And came back to another layer of I have to be in control. So we're praying through that. And at the end, my back is facing the mother's room. They're facing the platform in the sanctuary. Dr. Nedley was doing a series uh, in the afternoon. We were, we were meeting during the lunch hour. And uh, at the end, her husband says, do you see what Dr. Nedley's talking about? And I said, no. Turn around. And he had the DSM-4 or DSM-5 diagnosis for irritable bowel. We couldn't have organized that. They didn't bring it up till that day. It was just one of those little things. But she's never had irritable bowel since. She got a lot of healing and freedom because we were dealing with the experiences in her life, fruit and root. And then she decided to start a small group uh, in her home. And so here's a cycle of sin and forgiveness. She learned she's alone. She's not safe. So um, she has fear. So what's her solution to fear? Again, she's going to be in control. Now, that gives her a sense of control, but it doesn't really work. So then she ends up with panic. Then she ends up with her phobias, agoraphobia, claustrophobia. She's afraid of open spaces, closed spaces. No place is safe. And uh, then she has irritable bowel. So she can keep bringing the fear and the panic to God because those are intense feelings. And she'll get some relief, but it's going to be temporary, not permanent. And then what's going to happen to her hope when she's a Christian for a year, two years, three years, five years, she's praying, not knowing about the root system, the belief system, Satan's lies whispered in first-person language, her hope and faith is going to go down. And she's not going to witness to anybody. She's scared to death of other people. But here's Jesus' gospel that he's anointed by God to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set Diana free. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So um, she's abused and she's not safe. She's afraid of open spaces, closed spaces, panic attacks. I work with a lot of abuse, deal with a lot of panic attacks where they literally can't breathe. Nobody's hurting them, but their brain is remembering the past. Darkness is closing in. Their, their fight flight system kicks in. 
and they are having a panic attack and you have to help them breathe slowly, pray, uh, make sure that they're, they're aware that they're sitting, that they can feel their leg or their arm. Um, but anyway, uh, can't trust others and she needs to be in control to be safe. Jesus is tempted to, to identify with Diana. Jesus is abused. He's not safe. He's tempted to be like her. He's overwhelmed in his soul to the point of death. That's a lot of pressure that's pressing him down. He's abused during his trials and tempted to believe that he needs to be in control to be safe. Instead, he trusts in his father. Now we have a savior who can identify with Diana with all those negative thoughts. She was tempted to believe him. She did. He was tempted to believe him. He didn't. But he went through her suffering. So now because he went through her suffering as if it was her and he trusted in his father, he's earned the right to heal her and set her free. Here's a sample prayer uh, that one of the prayers we used to show what it's like to take her story, Jesus' story, and put it into a prayer. And again, I want to say, this is fruit and root. Dear God, thank you for choosing to have Jesus fulfill prophecy when he's overwhelmed in his soul to the point of death, in Gethsemane, and being abused through all of his trials. So he could suffer being tempted with my thoughts that I'm not safe and I need to be in control to protect myself with all my fears of people, closed spaces, open spaces, being embarrassed, irritable bowel syndrome, and panic attacks. So we're taking Jesus' story and her story of negative thoughts, negative feelings, and then again, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. So now we're in the resurrection part, to heal me and set me free, to receive my truest, deepest identity as your daughter with your peace, your spirit of forgiveness, and moving into ministry with a testimony. So we're wanting God to give her healing that moves her into ministry with a testimony. So it's not an accident. We actually want God to heal her, set her free in a way that she wants to share the good news. And she's doing it from the heart. So after she gets healing and freedom, she starts a small group. We didn't tell her to. She digs into Isaiah 53. She starts looking at more in Jesus' suffering and his story. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, uh, they did, they did it in a marijuana arrest in her neighborhood where all the cops go close in on a house at 2.30 in the morning. They got a bullhorn. They're waking people up. Usually that would have kicked her into a panic attack. She's startled but not panicked. The next day, all the news people are there to get a story. And they ask her husband. He says, no, he's not going to talk about it. The neighbor won't. They ask her and she says, yes, without thinking. And then she thought, what did I just do? They're going to be interviewing me on camera. And she starts getting hammered with negative thoughts from the father of lies. Does Satan leave you alone when you get healing and freedom? If you experience salvation, does he leave you alone or does he double up his attacks? He doubles up. But she has learned to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. So she says, you know, instead of me going into fear and panic and worrying about this, I can take my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. I can talk to God about this. She does, she gets peace, she does the interview, and she laughed later and said it was one of those stories that ended up going national. I don't know why a local uh, marijuana bust went national, but it did. And then a guy was trying to commit suicide. He went down the wrong who went down the wrong ramp intentionally, bounced off an 18-wheeler, hit her husband's car head-on, uh, and um, he lived, but he got a head injury, so he's never able to work again. So she's the one now driving him to all of his medical appointments, and she has to become the provider for the family. And was she concerned as a spouse? Yes. But did she have panic attacks? No. 
When the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Now, we wouldn't want her to be tested this way, but this was going to happen either way. The difference is she's getting healing and freedom in a way that she's growing daily with Jesus. And uh, then she's, her pastor's doing Dr. Nedley's depression the way out. So he says, Diana, why don't you come and uh, give your testimony? She's sitting there waiting to give her testimony and gets bombarded with negative thoughts from the father of lies. It feels like her thoughts. I'm not worthy. I shouldn't do this. Does the devil leave her alone because she's growing? No, she's going to give up, give her testimony. So she's getting hammered. And she thought, I got to get out of here. I shouldn't be doing this. But then she said, wait a minute. These thoughts aren't my thoughts. They feel like they're mine, but these are not my thoughts. She starts taking those thoughts to God. She gets peace. She ends up giving her testimony, helping with depression the way out, and becomes a church secretary. So what the devil meant for evil, God turned into deeper dependence on him and ended up giving her a job and an income. Again, would we want her to be tested with her husband's accident? Of course not. But it was going to happen anyway. And now she gets to go through it with Jesus, with God, not alone. That's the difference. And so uh, Jesus suffered, died, and rose from the dead to heal Diana, set her free, and move her into ministry with a testimony. So she goes from being abused, fearful, and isolated into ministry. This is what I call the whole gospel for the whole person to go to the whole world around them. And so we want to bring this theme into the Bible study so we're actually getting someone's story like Diana and we're not praying with her a year or two later with panic attacks. We're actually praying about that through the Bible study. And here's my belief. If we do this with people, are we going to baptize Diana or Diana and people she brings because she's getting healing and freedom? Do we need to wait for her to be baptized to be a missionary? Um, how much training did the woman at the well have? We didn't send her through a three-year course. We didn't send her to seminary first. How about the demoniac? We sent him to the seminary because he had, or you know, some three-year training course, right? Because I can't, right? No, Jesus says, go home and tell your story. I'm suggesting we don't need to wait for them to be baptized. As soon as they experience the good news, they'll share the good news. So not only is Diana going to get baptized, odds are she's going to bring somebody with her. Okay. So it's going to cost you more time, but you're going to get a disciple, not a member. You're not going to baptize somebody who's a member sitting passively. You're going to get a disciple who's a missionary, and you're probably going to get one or two more people on top of that. So I think it's worth the extra time. What if we had testimonies like hers and Rachel's on a regular weekly basis? What if they took place before the person is baptized as part of the discipleship process, stepping into the person's story first? What if we started with connection, not correction? Okay. Now, as we get into talking about this, what kind of thoughts and feelings would you have if you just found out that your mom and dad thought you, uh, the mom and dad you thought were your parents were not your real parents? People say angry, betrayed, confused. If we step into the world that people we're studying with, these can be some of the feelings they have when they find out that the day they're going to church is the wrong day. They've always thought it was the right day. What happens to them when they die isn't what they thought. Have we ever stopped and thought about what it's like to be on the receiving end of having your world ups, turned upside down with a different truth? I've always thought this is the way it is. Now I found it wasn't. So I want to start with stepping into their world and building a bridge to their world and back to the world of God's word. And I would suggest what's the number one factor helping me to learn how to step into other stories who are different than me, don't agree with me, don't dress like me, eat like me, believe like me, and eat haystacks like me. See how Jesus has stepped into my world. 
The more I see how Jesus stepped out of his world in heaven into my world, the more I'll be able to step into other people's world. The less I see that, the more I'm going to want to start with correction, not connection. I'm going to want to avoid Diana's brokenness. I'm not going to want it to come up. And if it does, I'll say a quick five-second prayer and keep moving on. But if you understand the Luke 4.18 gospel and the righteousness by faith, you can actually minister to her. And not only is she going to get baptized, she'll be a missionary before she gets baptized. So it's going to take more time to bring Jesus' story into her story, but you're going to get more fruit. So why is God willfully stepping into our stories? And why does he ask questions about our stories? Why take on humanity when he could have stayed in heaven? See, he asks questions when he knows the answer. Did he not know where Adam and Eve were that day? Had he lost his... Has he, had he misplaced his human GPS? No. He knew where they were. Is he asking for his benefit or theirs? Theirs. He says, tell me your story of where you are. I already know, but I want you to tell me the story you're telling yourself. Hagar, where'd you come from? Where are you going? Did God know where Hagar came from and where she was going? Yes, of course he did. He's all-knowing. He's not asking for his benefit. He's saying, tell me your story of your experience. I want to have a conversation with you. I want a relationship with you. I want you to tell me what's going on inside of you. I already know. I want you to tell me for your sake. People say, well, how come I have to tell God if he already knows? It's not for God. <laughs> it's when you verbalize it and you trust him with it, you grow in intimacy with God. And we have a rubber meets the road savior who is tempted to numb his pain on the cross. And that's behind every addiction we have, sex, drugs, meth, you name it. It's all checking out with our pain. So we have a rubber meets the road savior that can heal us and set us free. To the woman at the well, can I have a drink of water? Could Jesus have provided water for himself if he wanted? Sure he could have, he's God. But he said, no, I'm going to ask her to help me. What's the woman say? You're a Jew. You don't talk to us. Wouldn't that be sad if today people would think that we're not going to associate with them unless they eat like us, direct like us, come to the church on the same day as us, and eat haystacks like us. Wouldn't that be sad if we had a reputation like that? And in some ways it is. It's not totally true, but sometimes, you know, we can give that impression. Come and be like us, and then we'll accept you. If you're not going to come and dress like us and talk like us, then we're not comfortable. So, I want to get into the rapture uh, as one study, just to give you an example, I'm doing this with the state of the dead and the Sabbath as well, but I'm, I want to start with the rapture, second coming. But Jesus asked Mary on resurrection morning, why are you sad? Who are you looking for? Did Jesus not know who she was looking for? Did he need information as God about why? No, he's saying, tell me your story. So he knew why she was sad. Why would Jesus ask Mary two questions when he already knew the answer? Can a heart can Mary's heart fill with grief, sadness, and confusion receive truth? If you have a heart filled with grief, sadness, and confusion, can they receive truth? No. So he says, let's bring out the story in your heart, your negative thoughts and feelings. Let me minister to that first so you can receive truth. Desire of Ages says it was heart work with Christ. I started early in ministry. I just wanted to convert their head. I wanted to share information because no one ever taught me how to do heart work. So I had to stumble in it. God had to reveal my own brokenness and let him he start healing me. And then I said, oh, there's a better way to do this. I, it's not about winning arguments. It's not about proving uh, the right day of the week. It's not proving what happens when you die. That's not what it is. It's about building a relationship so that truth is more um, serendipitous. It's, so let's look at another one. 
uh, on the road to Emmaus, he comes up, shows up, and he says, why are you sad? What are you talking about? Did Jesus not know why they were sad? Did he, was he confused? Was he wondering what they were talking about? Of course not. He knows exactly what they were talking about. But he's saying, tell me your story. I want to have a conversation with you. This is the exact opposite of the way I started a ministry. I was full speed ahead, wanted to share truth. Why would Jesus ask a question when he already knew the answer? And choose to minister to their sadness before he opens prophecy. Can their hearts fill with fear and disappointment and confusion receive the truth? No. He ministers to their heart first. It's always heart work. It says Abraham laughed in his heart. We're circumcised in our heart. The new covenant is mind and heart. Heart and mind. It's a holistic experience. Okay? So did Jesus begin with truth first or did he begin by calming their fears first when he's with the disciples in the upper room? He begins by calming their fears. He says, you guys are freaked out. You're scared. Um, I'm not a ghost. Uh, touch me. It still doesn't work. So he says, give me solid food because ghosts don't eat food. They calm down. Then he tells, talks to him and he says, don't you know that everything in the law of Moses, the Psalms and prophets, talked about my suffering, death, and resurrection? Notice how he's ministering to the heart and their fears, anger, pain, confusion first so they can receive truth after their heart is calmer. This could be an accident or it could be a powerful way of doing ministry. Now why again would he calm their fears first before he talks about the, their whole Old Testament? Because they have fear and confusion. They think they're seeing a ghost. That's not the place where they're going to receive truth. Okay? He is truth in the flesh. He's telling them who he is and they can't believe it. So he says, let me calm you down. Touch me. Okay, that doesn't work. Let me give me some solid food. What's he doing? He's trying to calm them down so they have peace. And then once they have peace, they can receive more truth. He's getting their story. So we're always going to have story questions in these Bible studies. And we're going to invite them to share parts of their stories, just like Jesus invited his disciples to share their stories before he shared prophecy with them. We're going to invite them to read scriptures with context questions in the context of the verses. And this is sorely missing in Christianity, we're not teaching people how to study in context. We're spoon-feeding them. We're going to teach them how to teach themselves. And I'm not going to apologize because my goal is baptizing disciples who are missionaries who are bringing others in the journey before they even get baptized. So I'm going to teach them how to develop critical thinking skills studying scripture in context so it goes from their head to their heart. It's actually more fun to teach them how to teach themselves. It's quicker for me to give them the information. It is. It's better and actually more rewarding to watch them come alive. And then we have reflection questions in every study inviting them to think about the meaning of the practical applications with the character of God. Everything's going to be designed around the character of God so that every study, regardless of the topic, they're not just getting more information they're agreeing with, they're actually falling more in love with Jesus and with God and the plan of salvation. Okay. That's going to be the goal week after week. Now, uh, in an article by Charles Stone, he's a pastor, talks about uh, the brain a lot and leadership in the church. He says there's a process called insight generation that actually engages more of the brain. When someone generates their own solution by you asking a question, the fastest brain waves, the gamma band, sweep over her brain. It's called synchrony. Think of how a conductor synchronizes an orchestra's instrument when he steps in the podium and lifts his baton. When synchrony results in an insight in your staffer's brain, because you asked a question, you didn't spoon feed him, but you asked him to think about it, um, she will implement the solution with greater motivation because it is her solution rather than yours. 
Am I wanting them to believe what I believe, or am I wanting them to believe God's word for themselves? I get people all the time, I go through a training, people say, hey, I got a question about this. You know what they do? They get an email back asking them questions about their question. Do you know anybody else that would return questions with questions? That lived 2,000 years ago, that walked around in a robe? People would often ask Jesus questions. You know what he would do? Great question, here's a question for you. And when you answer your, that, my question, then I'll answer yours. So I'm asking them, and you know what I'm doing? I'm actually affirming that they're created in the image of God with brain cells, and I believe the Holy Spirit can speak through his God's word to their hearts. I'm actually affirming them being made in the image of God. If I spoon feed them, what am I saying? I'm saying, you can't think, let me do your thinking for you, and then you know what? I've missed an opportunity for those gamma bands to go over the, gamma waves to go over the brain and get insight and self-discovery always makes the biggest impact and you get more ownership. So I want to ask questions. I want to teach them to teach themselves. And we want to see how Jesus can step into the person's story first before sharing prophecy and truth so we can move into Christ's method alone and baptize disciples who are missionaries. And again, the title is going to be called Jesus' Story and My Story in Prophecy. I want them to see how Jesus lived out their story in prophecy and then lead in, as they get healing and freedom, lead into the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. By the way, in Daniel 2, uh, it tells the story of the whole world. If God knows the story of the whole world and all the major powers, does he know that person's story intimately? Yes. So I'm going to teach Daniel 2 the way we do it, but I'm also going to bring in the fact, hey, if he knows this story so well, all the worldly powers, the whole history of the world, let's look at how he knows your story personally and intimately. I'm bring, making it relational. It's not just history, uh, but I want them to see how it applies to them. So prophecy is going to be in there. Uh, and again, we want to baptize missionaries who are disciples who are missionaries. So we're going to talk about ministering to the heart of the person, trusting God in the rapture, and uh, as we go through this. By the way, a quick question. It usually goes... Um, 57 minutes and 27. This is going an hour and 27. I'm just curious. This started at an hour and 27. So if you want to cut me off, you won't hurt my feelings. I won't get rejected. But um, anyway, we'll go through this. It's the, Jesus' method is relational, ministering to the person's need first, time intensive, no apologies, building relationships, building trust with the other person first, asking questions, inviting self-discovery, in a way that's far more effective than the way I started with mere doctrinal instruction. So, are, are we be being in a story with them in a relationship, or are, is it more about being right about the truth? You have to make a decision. Uh, when I was talking about the man with the tattoo one day, a guy raised his hand and said, hey, you know, Leviticus says don't mark your body. How would he have responded when I tapped him on the shoulder and said, by the way, Leviticus says um, you're not supposed to have tattoos and you're wearing a tattoo. What kind of a what kind of a conversation would we have had? Think about it. This is beginning with correction, not connection. And this guy wasn't mean, but he was excited to tell me biblical truth. He's quoting Leviticus. You know what I, can you imagine me telling him that? And he says, by the way, this is, this is the date my son died. I would have felt so small. I'm so glad I asked him what it meant instead of telling him about Leviticus. So if I see somebody with a tattoo today, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna say, how did you come to get that tattoo? Tell me your story. By the way, they've already got it. It's a little too late to quote Leviticus for them. Okay? Is that where God wants me to start telling them that they shouldn't have tattoos? No, I don't have a tattoo. I don't want a tattoo. 
I'm suggesting though that that's correction, not connection, and that would have, and we, how insulting would that have been to the death of his son, the memory of his son? That date was about the day his son died. So we can begin with a person's need to process new things in the context of Jesus, who is truth, who's relational, or we can begin with the need for the person to agree with doctrinal truth, mere doctrinal uh, instruction. So am I willing, before I study with people, to ask God to reveal any unhealthy motives in me that would keep me from stepping into their story and asking questions? I don't need to be their answer man. I actually need to be their coach, their facilitator, and teach them how to teach themselves. That's what I need to do. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this. They've already been studying Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, so this theme will not be new by the time we talk about the rapture and the second coming. But we're going to emphasize this story in the beginning of every section. And if they have doubts um, about trusting God, we're going to ask them, do you trust God's promises? Because the heart issue is trusting God's promises, right? Can I trust God to go through trials? And the solution many have come up with, and it's sweeping the world, is there's going to be a secret rapture. He's going to take me out of trials. He can't take me through them, right? And so I'm going to start talking about, have you learned to trust God during trials? And if you haven't, then I'm going to say, what are your negative thoughts keeping you, your negative thoughts and experiences keeping you from trusting God? So before we get into the second coming issues, the truth about the second coming, I want to lead them to healing and freedom and learning to trust God's promises to take them through trials. So we're addressing that heart issue first. We're going to get to all the texts about the second coming and not being deceived. But first we're going to show what are their negative thoughts keeping them from trusting God and Jesus' negative experiences. Jesus, we're going to show them how Jesus was tempted to avoid trials, suffering, and tribulation. And how he was tempted to take shortcuts instead of trusting his father's promises to strengthen him and move through his trials and tribulations. So we're going to start. Did Jesus ever go through any trials that might have tested him in this area? All the time. Okay? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. He wasn't removed from the trials, but he trusted God and he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, we're going to bring in trials. And we're going to see, is Jesus bypassing his trials or trusting his Father? Are these fake temptations? For example, Jesus comes to save the world. And what does Satan do? In the third temptation in the wilderness, look, you came to save the world, here it is. Luke 4 and Matthew 4 both say Jesus was offered the kings of the world. Which means there was 3D technology before the 21st century. So Satan waves his hand and says, here on a silver platter, I know what you came for. You can avoid all the rejection, all those knucklehead disciples. They're going to disappoint you, even at the Last Supper. All the beatings and abuse from the religious leaders, from the Romans. You can avoid all that. Here's what you have. Just bow down and worship me. So was that a fake trial or was that a real trial? That was a real trial. And this is after 40 days of not eating. And then... Uh, he's sweating blood in Gethsemane, struggling to surrender to his father's will, trusting his father to be a present help in trouble instead of trusting in his own strength. Was this real blood or fake blood? You know, in the movies, they give you fake blood, right? Was this fake blood or real? It was real blood. It was real sweat falling through his forehead. Uh, he's tempted to numb his pain on the cross, which is behind every addiction, to come down from the cross and to believe his father had forsaken him. Now, he's covered in darkness. Turn Psalm 22, 1 a scripture into prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, he, is this a real temptation to believe his father has forsaken him? 
Yes. We know he didn't believe it because one, he's talking to God. He's turning scripture into prayer. I want to say that again. He's turning scripture into prayer, taking it to God. And what are his closing words? Into your hands I commit my spirit. So he's turning scripture into prayer, staying connected with his father when he cannot see, feel, or sense his father's presence. And then he closes with a statement of faith. That's how he closes his life. Now here's E.J. Wagner, his coming in the flesh, having been made in all things like unto us, and having been tempted in all points like we are, he has identified himself with every human soul just where that soul is. He's not asking you to be farther along in your journey today. You can't be farther along, so he meets you where you're at. And from the places where every human soul is, he has consecrated for that soul a new and living way that through all the vicissitudes and experiences of a whole lifetime, he's covered your whole life, and even through the death and tomb into the holiest of all at the right hand of God forevermore. And this way he has consecrated for us, he having become one of us has made this our way. It belongs to us. So he steps into Diana's world. He says, you're going to be abused and tested and tempted. I will be abused, tested and tempted. Um, and he endowed every soul with the divine right to walk in this consecrated way. So not only does he step into our stories for a whole life, but you know what? He makes it possible for us to walk in the same way. And by his having done it himself in, the flat, in our flesh, he has made it possible, yea, he has given actual assurance that every human soul can walk in that way that is, and by entering fully and freely into the holiest of all too. So now we have direct access to God, like he does. So let's get into the rapture. So we're going to be starting to talk to them about the story question. Do you trust God? Is your peace in life based upon a personal relationship with Christ and his commitment to fulfill his promises to be a present help in trouble? Or is it having God remove challenges and trials and tribulations from your life? Jesus' prayer, by the way, was not to take us out of the world, but to protect us in the world with his presence. That was his prayer. So if I'm looking for an escape, I'm going against scripture. And we have a whole page of Bible promises so we can look at it and say, are you trusting Bible promises or are you looking for an escape? And then we're going to bring the prayer in and, and if they say, you know, um, if they say, you know, Ron, I've learned to trust God, then Ron's going to say, can you tell me three stories, three trials you've gone through where you've learned to trust God during trials? So you're going to get three testimonies. Tell me three a trials that have built trust. And then we say, would you be willing to say a prayer of thanks for the way you've learned to trust God? This is going to be the foundation of our study on the second coming and the rapture. So we're addressing that issue of tribulation. Their faith grows as they share with me. My faith grows as I hear them share with me. Romans 1 to 12, Paul says, I want to come. I'll share with you. You'll share with me. We'll mutually grow. We'll mutually encourage each other. So this is a story question that we're going to ask them and then have them say a prayer of thanks. Now, what if they say, well, I haven't, I struggle. I'm gonna thank them for their honesty and then I'm gonna ask them, would you be willing to say, Lord, I believe enough to be here. Help me, help my struggle to trust your word. And then we're gonna ask God, would you identify negative thoughts keeping him from trusting God's promises during trials and tribulation? So again, this is the preparation. This is the heart work first before the scripture. And then they're going to look at experiences in Jesus' story and we'll have them on the worksheet in the Bible study where they can choose negative thoughts in their life 
negative experiences in Jesus' life. And then we're going to turn it into a prayer. We're also, I'm not going to spend time, but we're going to talk about I was coming as literal, physical, audible, global, and eternal. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but in part two, now we're going to get into uh, how Jesus' disciples said, tell me the signs of your coming. And Jesus' first thing isn't look for this, this, and this. It says beware of deceivers, right? You know that, so I'm not going to cover that with the time we have. But what I'm going to do is we're going to pray and ask God a prayer of thanks to receive God's truth and discernment instead of being deceived. So we'll take Jesus' words, don't be deceived. We're turning it into a prayer like Jesus did on the cross. Thank you, God, that you'll give us your Holy Spirit to give us your truth and discernment so we are not deceived. And then we're going to continue praying and we'll summarize the five basic beliefs of the rapture. You can do them in different numbers. There's a secret coming. Antichrist appears, seven years of tribulation, second chance for salvation, and then Jesus gains the victory. We're going to look at Luke 17 and one verse from Matthew 24 about deceptions and about coming to a secret place. But Jesus said his coming would be like lightning from heaven, and we're going to look at context. So uh, we're going to look at, now there's going to be a temptation to answer quickly according to what I know is true. In, in Luke 17, 34 to 36, the, word, the phrase left behind is there three times, 34, 35, and 36, okay? One's taken, one's left. One's taken, one left. So, can we agree that the Bible says one's taken and one left? That's what the scripture says. Now, some people are nervous because they don't want to believe in the secret rapture. But we're not, we're not agreeing with the person's belief. We're just seeing it. We're beginning. So they're going to say, most likely, that um, they are left behind and that um, those left behind will have a second chance. We can try and defend the truth or allow the person to share their belief. And remember, Jesus began where the person was. We're not going to begin with correction. We're going to begin with connection. So we're just going to acknowledge Scripture says left behind, and then we're going to look at these verses in context. Now remember, we've already set down the foundation in the first study where we're connecting their heart to Jesus' heart, helping them trust God, increase their faith to trust God during trials. So the heart work is being done, which means they're going to have more of the Holy Spirit to respond to truth. So let's look at these verses in context. In the days of Noah, uh, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ain't drank and were married. The flood came and destroyed them all. Now they, if they think that left behind means secret rapture, and then sec second chance for those who are left behind, uh, here's the problem. Does this scripture that they point to with the left behind verses, does it suggest a heavenly rapture with a second chance for those left behind, or are they destroyed with no second chance? They're destroyed with no second chance. So if I'm asking them to think about it, they're learning themselves. This verse doesn't work, right? So they're, what's happening is they're teaching themselves to study God's word in context and see that those left behind do not receive a second chance and there's no heavenly rapture for that verse. Well, let's go to the next verse. L talks about Lot, raining down fire and brimstone and destroyed them all. It's going to be the same in the Son of Man. So here we have two verses in a row preceding these left behind verses. And guess what? Once again, does it speak about a heavenly rapture with a second chance for those left behind or they're destroyed with no second chance? So again, he's studying and he's seeing in this verse, you cannot get out of this verse uh, a secret rapture with a second chance for those left behind. But I'm asking him to think about it and come up with the answers. Now there's a verse right after the three left behind verses. And that one happens to say one's taken, the other's left, and they say, where Lord? 
Jesus' answer is, wherever the body is, the eagles would be gathered together. Matthew 24 adds a little more detail, calls it a carcass. Are carcasses alive or dead? They're dead. So again, is, there a, is this a heavenly rapture with a second chance for those left behind? Or are these carcasses dead bodies lost with no second chance? So he's learning that in this context, left behind cannot mean heavenly rapture, second chance for those, secret rapture. These verses don't mean that, okay? Now, we've had three stories, two before the verses and one after. So we have Noah's flood and Sodom's fire. There's two stories just before left behind and then three times it mentions left behind. And then one story after the three times is mentioned left behind. So I'm not arguing with about left behind means. I'm asking the study in the context of Luke 17. I'm not arguing with them. I'm asking them to tell me what's in scripture. And guess what happens? Noah's flood, they're dead and lost, no second chance. Sodom's fire, they're dead and lost, no second chance. Carcasses, they're dead and lost, no second chance. So what's happened is they're earthly judgments with no second chance. They're telling me, and we're studying in context, we're not running to 10 chapters, we're staying in one chapter. Now, I couldn't have thought of this, but as I was thinking about this, guess what? Um, once they begin seeing this and they ask questions, I can try and reason with them and argue with them. Or I can pray and say, God, would you be with us as we continue studying? Okay? Thank you for revealing your truth in your word as we continue studying to know you and be ready for Jesus' second coming. So you can try and use your human wisdom. What does Spirit of Prophecy say? Human wisdom and logic, it works really, really well every time, right? No, it says the exact opposite. It's what we want. So I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us and say, you know, you're beginning to wonder. You thought left behind meant secret rapture. Let's pray and keep studying and see what God's word says. Okay? I'm not going to, I'm going to keep studying. Now, and then we're going to look at the seventh thief in the night verses too. Second Peter 3.10 has a bridge. And I couldn't have thought of this, but actually God has created a bridge from Luke 17 to the key verse used in the rapture for those who believe in the rapture. Because he begins it by talking about those who have willfully forgotten the flood that destroyed those who were left behind. It's a beautiful bridge. And then it talks about the long-suffering God. God doesn't want us to be deceived, right? And he wants everybody to be saved. He desires everybody to be saved. It talks about the long-suffering of God. So we're going to help them not be deceived and there's a temptation to answer quickly and correctly according to what I know, correcting the rapture belief. But did Jesus begin with truth or where the person was? He began where the person was. So we're going to go into 2 Peter 3.10 and, and here's the verse. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now if you believe in the rapture, does that sound like a secret coming, a rapture with a second chance or not secret, no second chance? I'm not asking you for your answer. I'm asking you to step into the world of the person who believes in the rapture. What are they going to say? They're going to say it sounds like a secret rapture, right? Because it's what they've been taught. So, again, we're not agreeing with them. We're just seeing where they're coming. We're building bridges at every step of the way. And they're going to say secret rapture. So agreeing is not seeing. And the more secure you are in Jesus, the more you trust God's word, the more you can let them learn on their own and teach them to discover it for themselves. The less secure you are, the more you're going to have to give them information and move into that argumentative approach that Spirit of Prophecy says doesn't work. Okay? So we have to make a decision. Is my security in proving I'm right and they're wrong? 
Or is my security in leading them into God's word and that God's word is powerful enough to reach their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit? He's using you as a teacher, but you're teaching them to teach themselves. So now that, but see, the problem with that verse, thief in the night, is only one-fourth of the verse. So we're going to turn the page, and then we're going to see the whole verse. The thief in the night, in which the heavens pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed uh, with intense heat, the earth and its works are burned up. So now let's look at it in context. We began where they are with just the part of the verse that they've been taught out of context. I'm not agreeing, I'm just seeing. Now, when they see this, what's going to happen to them? They thought that the first part of the verse was the only part of the verse and it confirmed what they believed. But now, does this sound like a secret rapture with a second chance? Does it sound very secret? When there's a roar, the earth, heavens pass away with a roar, the elements destroyed with heat, the earth and its works burned up. Does that sound secret or not secret? It's not going to take long for them. And they're going to be uncomfortable. And if they do, but, but you know, Daniel, I, I've always believed this and this doesn't make sense. It's not what I believed. Then, then Daniel doubles down and tries to convince him, right? And gives him 10 more verses, right? No, what I can do, what Daniel can do is say, you know, God... He's always believed that this verse meant a secret rapture. He's seeing it different when he's reading the whole verse. I'm not agreeing with him. I'm just bringing his story to God. God, what do you want him to know about this as we continue studying and looking at 2 Peter 3? And then we keep going. So I'm deferring everything to God. And I'm trusting God to speak to his heart. And the level of conviction is going to go up as he's studying in context. I'm not saying he'll be comfortable, but... Do you trust the Holy Spirit to speak through his word and his word not to come void or do you need to be the one to convince them? Do you trust in your ability to persuade them or do you trust God's word? Paul said, I'm not going to come with words of wisdom and persuade you. And Paul was a pretty smart guy. So then we're going to look at the next verse and uh, let's look at 2 Peter 3.10, the very next verse. That should say 3.10. 11 up there, not 310. Now you know I'm not perfect, you're shocked, but I think you'll survive. So that should be 311. Or it's, let's say 310 in the context of 11 and 12. 11 says, things are dissolved, heaven's dissolved, heaven's on fire, melt with a fervent heaver. Does this sound like a secret rapture or not a secret rapture? It doesn't sound like a secret rapture, does it? This is the very next verse. And so we're studying 2 Peter 310 in the, in the context of 11 and 12. And then we're going to go, again, what else does... 3.11 say, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness regarding the coming day, coming day of the Lord when the heavens are dissolved? So is this talking about a secret rapture or is it a, surprise, is it a warning of surprise to sight being told to watch and be ready? See, God's warning us, you don't know when I'm going to come. I'm not going to give you the day or the hour. But you need to be walking in my righteousness, my holiness, my peace, my joy, because you don't know. This is not talking about a second secret rapture. It's a warning to be prepared because it could happen at any time. Okay? Um, now, I mentioned the other day that I I'm allergic to math. That's why I became a pastor. But I can count to six. I can do that. Now, one of the main reasons that the rapture is there, sometimes they deny it, but one of the main reasons is they want an escape from the tribulation. They do. The secret rapture removes you from the time of tribulation, the seven plagues. 
Now again, remember, we've already gone through in the first study, part one, that Jesus was tempted to avoid trials, take shortcuts, have God remove him from trials and tribulations. He didn't. We've already taken time to say, do you have any negative thoughts keeping you from trusting God through trials and tribulations? So this isn't cold turkey. We already have this foundation of connecting their heart with God's heart, ministering to that heart issue behind the rapture versus the real second coming of do you trust God during trials and tribulations? Okay, so we've laid that foundation and then we're going to build on it. So, uh, Revelation, the last time that the word thief in the night shows up in the Bible is the Revelation 16 in the sixth plague. And it's the seventh time it's mentioned, maybe more depending on how you count them. Five of the seven last plagues have already fallen. Okay, again, I can count to six. This shows up during the sixth plague. How long has the time of tribulation, the seven plagues, been going? How many plagues are there before the sixth plague? There's five plagues. So the last thief in the night verse that comes up happens to come up just before the second coming of Christ. Five plagues have already taken place. Is the thief in the night verse about a secret rapture that removes you from the tribulation or the plagues? No, it isn't. And if we would study in context, we would see the revelation is about a revelation of Jesus walking with us through trials, not having us avoid trials. So again, I want to make this point clear. Five plagues have already happened. The tribulation has been going on for five plagues. The next, it shows up in the sixth plague. The next one is the seventh, the second coming of Christ. So uh, it's after the plagues have started, after the majority of the plagues have started, 80% of the plagues have already taken place. So is this about secrecy or is this about warning? Is this a secret rapture that removes you from tribulation or is it a warning to be prepared and trust Jesus now? So warning. And Jesus in love is warning us. Okay? It, so those who are surprised, it's going to be surprised despite the warning. Despite the warning. So it's impossible to read Revelation 16, know it's the sixth plague, know that five plagues have already taken place, the tribulation has been 80% over, and then the thief in the night comes. It's impossible to say that the thief in the night verse is proof that it's a secret rapture. When you read 2 Peter 3.10 in context, it destroys the secret rapture. When you read uh, verses 11 and 12 in the same chapter, it destroys the secret rapture. When you find out that it's in the sixth plague, it destroys the secret rapture, which means I need to be learning how to trust Jesus in real lifetime trials now. And the good thing is we have a Savior who went through trials, made like us in every way. You've been hearing quotes from me and from many others from the 1888 work that Jesus took on humanity, made like us in every way, tempted like us in every way, including avoiding tribulations and trials, who can identify with us and has made a way for us. So, uh, of seven verses that we look at in the study, how many of them emphasize secrecy? How many of them emphasize a surprise at the second coming despite being warned and told to be ready, watching, and prepared? Well, we've already seen 2 Peter 3.10 isn't there. Guess what? We've already seen that Revelation 16 is a warning. Guess what? Every one of them are warnings. The thief in the night verse is a warning every single time. There's nothing secret about it. The only secret is that they've been deceived. 
That's the secret. So we can pray, and they're going to they're go, but wait a minute, I've always been taught something else. Now that I've gone through a lot of scriptures, now I go into argumentative mode, logical mode, and now I try and win them over with my profound wisdom, right? No, I keep focusing on connection, not correction. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to begin with this story. Dear God, he's always believed in a secret rapture with a second chance. How do you want to help be a present help? Because we've already looked at Psalm 46 already and earlier on that page full of scriptures. We didn't go through it today. But it's a theme throughout the study. How do you want to be a present help in trouble to him right now through your promises in your word as we continue studying? So he brings up, but I've always believed this. It's, I see it, but it's hard to believe. Have you ever seen truth and you haven't fully received it? And this is where this person may be. Don't go logical left brain on him. Don't go correction. Go to God, your heavenly father, and ask him. Bring the Holy Spirit in. The Holy Spirit's a better teacher. He will use you. He will use you as a teacher facilitator. But the burden isn't on you. And then we have to choose. Are we going to study God's word in context or out of context? So what we've done is we started with Jesus' story of trusting his father through his trials and tribulations. His story, his story Jesus' story of learning to trust God through trials. A summarize the secret rapture beliefs in the con what it means the left behind means in the context of Luke 17 and 2nd Peter 3 we've looked at the context before and after the verses that have been misquoted where parts of them are we looked at context of many of the verses about Jesus coming being literal physical audible global and eternal so here's the secret about the secret rapture because that's the name of this study it's not a secret isn't that profound the secret rapture isn't secret. That's the secret about the secret rapture. It's not secret. It's global. It's literal. It's visible. The heavens are dissolved. The earth is dissolved. It's burned up. This is, we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth. So it's not a secret. And then we have reflection questions about gaining confidence in your ability to study God's word in context, asking God for help to understand his word. We're not going into that argumentative approach that I started with and I burn bridges, I didn't build bridges. So I've learned the hard way that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. There's a relational way and a wrong way to do it. Um, so, and then we're going to ask, what does it say about God that he chose to have Jesus go through major trials and tribulations so he could be tempted to not trust his father's promises? He came through, but he was tempted, right? What does it say about God that he would have Jesus tempt you and me with the same thoughts to not trust God during trials? So again, we're summarizing, we're reflecting on the character of God. So that he knows about all about my struggles to not trust his father's promises when I go through trials and tribulations. He already knows. You're representing a God, you're revealing a God who already knows this person struggles. That says, I don't want to go there. What person in their right mind would want to live through the tribulations? Okay. If you don't want to live through the, the seven plagues, I don't blame you. The question isn't whether we're going to live through it or not. The question today is, guess what? Will I trust the Father? And what does it say about the Father's heart that he had Jesus go through trials so that when Jesus says, go here, do this, here's my will for your life, and you, God says, go right, and I say, great, I'm going left, which I've done many times. I have an agreement with God. He'll tell me his will for my life. I'll kick and scream as hard as I can. He hangs on tight, and we get where we're going. I've got a Jonah gene in me. 
Okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at being a Jonah. You want me to go there? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going the other way. I have a Jesus tempted to not surrender his will to his Father's will in Gethsemane. So I can receive his spirit of surrender to his Father. That's righteousness by faith. It's not me trying harder to do what I'm unable to do. It's not me trying to impress God and say, you know, I've got so much faith, just let me have it. I'm ready to go through the seven last plagues. Bring it on. No, I'm saying, God, uh, if it's up to me, I really don't want to. But thy will be done, whatever trial you're bringing me. And I bet every one of us are facing certain trials right now as we're hearing. We're not talking about seven plagues, trials now. So God's inviting me to trust him. So we're thinking about the character of God and his love so that we can receive Jesus' faith, Jesus' hope, Jesus' surrender to his Father's will, Jesus' trust he developed when he came to earth as a human being. This is inviting them to fall more in love with God and with Jesus. But remember, did we start with the text in the second coming or did we start with Jesus in his first coming in prophecy? We started with Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus in Gethsemane, Jesus at Calvary. Now Hebrews 11:11 11, 11 says, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed to get pregnant and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged God as being faithful who has promised. She judged God as being faithful who had promised. So we want to ask, how are you judging God? Is he worthy of being trusted in his promises? Is he present? Is he a present help in times of trouble? And if they say no, that's and it's an honest answer. Can we pray with them? If they're not ready to give up their belief in the rapture, you know what? I've taken years to come for God to get my attention on certain things. But I can always ask him, you know, that's okay. Uh, it's new information. Can we pray and ask God what needs to happen for you to receive the fullness of truth? Let's not be like Pilate who said, what is truth, and walked away. So I'm inviting him to continue praying and seeing. And then we're going to have a decision card. Uh, can we agree that Jesus warned us there would be deceptions? And again, prophecy is receiving uh, God's promise to redeem and restore me for eternity through a literal, physical, audible second coming. So every study we'll bring in in prophecy is really God's promise to redeem us and restore us for eternity. And then we'll adapt it to each study. Uh, but we're going to say, do you agree or disagree that Jesus warned us there would be deceptions? Do you agree or disagree there would be deceptions by false prophets who would deceive the very elect? Uh, that there would be deceptions by G of Jesus coming secretly, being out in the desert. Deceptions by those twisting God's word. Because we'll have looked at Second Peter. Uh, can we agree that God's word offers grace and truth to growing and knowing Jesus? And then can we receive God's prophecy as his promise to redeem us and restore us for eternity through a literal, physical, audible, eternal second coming? Okay? So we're asking them to make a decision. If they say no, we ask them, can we pray about it? Okay? So that the purpose is to continue bringing them to the cross and trusting that God can reach their heart more effectively than I can. I'm a conduit. I am. God's using me, I'm facilitating, I'm teaching them how to teach themselves and to know God. And then we keep studying. And we're connecting Jesus' story to their story, no matter what the problem is. So, we started with Jesus' story first. The person's story second, we've included ministry time. We've included two key chapters in Luke 17 and 2 Peter and the thief verses, studying in context. We're equipping him to study God's word in context and know God's word for himself with a much greater degree of uh, conviction. 
And then he can share with the Bible study, Luke 17 and 2 Peter 3, he's teaching himself to teach himself to answer family, friends, and pastors in context. So if they go home and they say, you know, here's what I've learned. This is really exciting. I'm falling more in love with Jesus. And they go, wait a minute, there really is a rapture. They've learned to study 2 Peter 3.10 in context. Is somebody going to be able to talk them out of that context that the Holy Spirit has reached their heart? No. If they say, well, what are all the left behind verses? You know what they're going to do? They're going to get out the page in the left behind verses. You know what they're going to find out? Is somebody going to be able to talk them out of those verses and left behind when they've studied in context? And they've seen that left behind is here. Uh, Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah stories are here. With no, they are left behind, aren't they? Can we agree people were left behind off the boat, Noah's boat, and, out of, and didn't leave Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, we're, not, we're, we're actually agreeing with them. And then others are left behind with carcasses. The problem is they're all dead and there's no second chance. If you teach people in context of Jesus loving us and warning us, it's going to be impossible to talk them out of it because they're going to say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. It's what you've always taught me. But here is scripture in context. They'll have learned in context and they'll have the Bible study. And they'll have Jesus' story as well. So what I'm suggesting is that we can connect Jesus' story and prophecy in a way that we're honoring Jesus' method that's very relational, ministering to the person's need first. It's time intensive, building trust with the person first. We're asking questions. We're inviting uh, self-discovery in a way that's far more effective than mere doctrinal instruction. And I don't feel good to say I began my ministry focusing on mere doctrinal instruction. But that's my story at that point. I was out to show what the truth was. I just happened to leave Jesus out in the relationship building part. So what did my aunt say? I don't, wanna, I don't really want to hear from you anymore. And if someone did that for, to me, would I want to hear from them again? Would I want to have more conversations when I'm blindsided? No. Praise God, she liked roses and I was able to rebuild the relationship. What I'm saying is this is going to be more rewarding because the burden is not on me to convince them. My job is to bring him into Jesus' story in the Word, ask story questions, and let Jesus minister from his heart to their heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when you sent Jesus here, he asked lots of questions. He invited people to share their story, and you're inviting us to connect Jesus' story and the person's story in prophecy so that we're baptizing disciples who are missionaries moving into ministry with a testimony where we've learned to trust you more They've learned to trust you more, and we see the power of your Holy Spirit changing hearts and moving people into ministry with a testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.